Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 23 of The Pick List. How's your week been? Hello, Laura. It's been really good. Thank you. I've had a busy week writing and actually a busy week having some writing being published as well. Um, I've just had a big feature on the plant-based category uh, come out in the Grocer and also a piece in the Telegraph on the future of supermarket counters. So lots of writing for me at the moment. How's your week been? I'm very excited about your Telegraph piece in particular. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah, good week. Thank you. Um, doing quite a lot of planning. We've got a, a big Meet Business Women um, uh, sessions running on the 23rd and 24th of November on women in meat tech. Uh, so we've got technology and transformation experts talking to us about robotics and automation in the meat space. That's going to be really exciting to see what's coming next and what's after blockchain. That sounds really exciting. I'll be very interested to hear your report back on uh, on how those sessions go. I'll keep you posted. So we've got a, another amazing episode this week. We do indeed. Um, we're joined this week by Bruce Drinkwater, who is chairman and founder of Storm Brands, a branding consultancy that does lots and lots of work in uh, FMCG. Um, Bruce has got lots of experience of the grocery industry and all things FMCG, so he can bring a really interesting perspective to the articles. Should we start the show? Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're delighted to have you. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do and how you're related to food and grocery? Uh, my name's uh, Bruce Drinkwater. Uh, I'm the chairman of Storm Brands, which I established back in 1994. So we're a, a branding consultancy we've designed for most of the uh, UK retailers and we've also done an awful lot of F- FMCG food brands and strategic positioning so over the years I've worked on a lot of different food brands so that, that, that's myself. And we're really excited to to get a sort of sense of, of that broad perspective that you have across uh, the market. You've brought some very interesting articles, very topical pieces for us to discuss as well. Why don't you tell us about the first article you've picked for us? Yeah, the, the first article I've taken is from Reuters um, It's and the title base is Aldi UK to ramp up click and collect trial and um, the, the article basically explains they've obviously um, increased the trial to 200 stores out it's got 900 at the moment and they have obviously an eight percent market share um, but in uh, obviously they've been very clever in terms of the way they position themselves in april they sold a lot of food parcels which they used um deliveroo and partners with to help the vulnerable which i thought was excellent uh, and the ceo giles uh, Hurley has actually said that it's been a hugely powerful uh, so far, been very successful. Uh, and I think they see obviously shopping the channel. It's 14% uh, now, which is a huge growth over the last recent months. And actually, particularly the next uh, few years to increase to up to 30%. So it's an amazing opportunity. And also, I think 
The challenge for uh, the, the conventional retailers and supermarkets is obviously they always had a bit of a, uh, a differentiator in their home delivery and their click and collect. So the challenge for them now that Aldi start to eat into their arena and starting to take advantage of the uh, opportunities of in, uh, home delivery, uh, I think going to be really interesting. And also what I thought was, was fascinating and really liked about it was you actually can, once you order, they will actually deliver it to your car, which I think in this current COVID situation is a, a, is a really great thing. The fact that you can actually sit in your car and their staff will actually bring the food out to you. So I think that's a, a really positive uh, message and one I think other retailers need to be aware of because I'm sure they're not going to stop at 200 stores. I'm sure it's going to increase and it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing them actually delivering as well as having the click and collect uh, facility. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting in um, in what they've done is how they've leveraged a, a partner like Deliveroo mm. because the the sort of the setup costs around online operations, of course, are huge. So making mm. um, the the economies of of scale work can be quite challenging if it's not a major part of your business. I mean, it remains challenging for for all of the major grocers as well. Whereas if you have a partner like that, you can offer. Um, an, an element of online without needing to invest in in you know your own delivery fleet, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yes, I agree. I totally agree. And it'll be interesting to see if they actually the offer starts to expand from what they have in store. Because again, another slight disadvantage they have over some of the big bigger superstores is obviously they have got less products. But obviously, as soon as we start getting to the facility, being able to offer a delivery service and a click and collect. There's an opportunity to actually offer a wider profile and a, a wider product portfolio. So that, that could be interesting as well. Um, yeah, fascinating. And uh, I'm sure Little will be uh, watching them with, uh, with care as well. You're totally right. And it's a fascinating article. And, and as you say, Julia, for Aldi to move into their own distribution, have their own wheels is a massive step. But you can imagine their efficiency on this click and collect rollout trial. And even something simple that they embedded quite early doors, wasn't it? Was their um, stop start lighting at, at the store entrance to show when shoppers have capacity to go in. Interestingly, something just Tesco are just starting to roll out now and Aldi have had it in play for a couple of months. And you can soon imagine Aldi having dedicated bays, I suppose a bit like Halfords have in their stores where you can pull up and get service and as you say Bruce, it delivered to, to your car there, that they could be real leaders in this and uh, and there's a huge demand for, for click and collect I think maybe people, they're out and about I know not as much under lockdown too but still a bit when you know running the kids to school or whatever it may be that that that, that click and collect can fit in nicely rather than wanting home delivery slots so that they could really shift the dial here and I think the point you make about Lidl being very interesting to watch in this I think is a point well made partly because they seem to be going in a slightly different direction here mm. you know they they are not going down that route they are not really embracing online um, to to the same extent really as, as Aldi have so I think it's quite interesting that you know we often think of Aldi and Lidl as a sort of you know 
as a collective almost, you know, we talk yeah. about the German discounters. It's always fascinating, I think, when you see them diverge on, on certain key strategic points. And I think this is um, potentially one of those areas where um, they, they, they're drawing slightly different conclusions around how viable that online model is within the confines of a, of a, of a discounter strategy. So I think it'll be very interesting to see whether we'll see them uh, sort of pursue slightly different strategies or whether ultimately Lidl is going to look at um, online capacity as well. Julia, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from CNBC and it's an article titled McDonald's Unveils McPlant Line, which includes Meatless Patty co-created by Beyond Meat. This is an announcement that's been reported quite widely. It's obviously a big move for McDonald's and the whole plant-based market. So it's quite a bit to to unpick here around what it means for the category, what it does for plant-based reputation around health, um, and also some interesting stuff around the the branding side. Um, Just looking at social media, I think there seems to be a split between people who think McPlant is an absolutely genius name and those who think it's a terrible name. So um, yeah, I'd be interested to to get your take on that, uh, Bruce, in a minute. Um, But the reason I picked this particular article is because it highlights an interesting secondary story related to this announcement, which is on the supplier side. When this story made headlines on Monday first, what you would have seen is quite a few major news outlets and wires correcting their original reporting, tweaking headlines, making a few clarifications, that sort of stuff. Because there was initially some confusion around who is going to make these patties and what relationship are they going to have with McDonald's. And what the CNBC article reports is that McDonald's, when they made their announcement, described McPlant as created by McDonald's and for McDonald's, but they didn't say anything about suppliers. And Beyond Meat then told CNBC and other news outlets that in fact they had co-created the patties that would be included in the McPlant range. Now the significance of that statement is that Beyond Meat Meat had a trial running with McDonald's testing plant-based products in some markets. So when that McDonald's announcement came out, talking about the new range created by McDonald's for McDonald's and not mentioning Beyond Meat, lots of people assumed it meant they had ditched Beyond Meat as a partner. And so the Beyond Meat shares plummeted. And that's when you had them coming out saying, actually, we were involved in the creation of the patties. Now, being involved in the creation of the patties or co-creating the patties um, sort of isn't massively precise in terms of what that means for the ongoing relationship between Beyond Meat and McDonald's. And they haven't really provided much further detail on what the relationship is going to look like from here on in. McDonald's aren't commenting on this either. So investors in Beyond Meat have really been left scratching their heads wondering how important and how lucrative this deal really is and why McDonald's isn't willing to go on the record confirming the relationship. There are some possible explanations here, um, including that McDonald's basically wanted to make this announcement about what they are doing, wanted the focus to be on the significance of the deal for them rather than creating a distraction by making it all about a particular supplier, which I think makes sense. Beyond Meat has a big media profile as well. You could quite easily see that Mentioning that company in the announcement could have resulted in some headlines sort of focusing on on both companies rather than just McDonald's. Um, 
But I think in a way, not having the supplier in there has created more headlines because there has been that sort of element of un- uncertainty. And you're certainly still looking at, at the coverage today. There's an interesting piece in Bloomberg as well. There still seems to be a fair bit of head scratching around what exactly that relationship is and what it's going to, to look like in future. So this deal, this range, I think is going to be watched very closely by the market, not just because of what it means for, for plant-based, but also to see if we can get a few more details on exactly who is going to be making these products. So a big move, big announcement, but also lots of um, un, unresolved questions still to be answered. Bruce, what did you make of it? And, and I'd love your take on the whole McPlant brand what's your sense of um is it a good brand name do you think i I actually don't mind the brand name i have to be honest i think the challenge is that that they've done what mcdonald's always do is they've gone for a very generic sort of feeling of you know it's just going to be a bit feels like a vegetable burger rather than trying to be a little bit more emotive in terms of how they come across and that's where i think the name mcplant feels a little bit you know, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't deliver taste to me or sort of that, you know, if I think it could have been a little bit a little better, uh, if I'm honest. Um <clears throat> and, and I generally hope that they actually do appreciate that there's a lot of people trying to reduce the meat in uh, meat intake and and perhaps you'd be thinking of, about health as well as just doing a, a vegetable option uh, and how they can actually you know, move forward from just having a salad or, you know, carrot sticks to something a little bit more interesting in the way they actually bring a more healthy menu in terms of the way they cook the product, et cetera. But that's, I think, is the challenge that, you know, A, it needs to be vegan, not just vegetarian. Uh, and also, I think they need to think about the the health and the nutrition and, and the actual taste, uh, I think, is, is the really important factor. Uh, otherwise, we're just eating unhealthy vegetable products rather than uh, unhealthy meat products. I don't think it's a big opportunity. I think they need to think about the opportunity of actually making sure that they can actually concentrate on health as much as uh, the fact that it's uh, meat-free. I was really interested by this article, um, and particularly as as you've uh, explained there, Julia, about, you know, the there's still a little bit of ambiguity over that supply chain piece. I think, um, you know, doing pieces of work with McDonald's in the past, they are always very progressive about talking about their supply base, their farmers, their, you know, and leading the charge in terms of uh, um, carbon emissions and trying to get the baseline of production up to make sure that um, we're doing the best we can across be that sustainability, animal welfare and other things. And as you say, Bruce, even though that this isn't an animal product, it's a plant-based product, I think the transparency over what product, what exactly the ingredients are in there, what they're doing to try and shift the dial to make those ingredients as healthy, as well-produced and as sustainable as possible will be key. And yeah, shareholders and the, the existing supply base will be watching that really closely because you can't have it for one category and not for the, for others, even though it, it's a plant, not, not an animal product. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't I wouldn't look at this um at this week's news and conclude that there is necessarily going to be that uh, that discrepancy. I think there is a very good chance that part of this was about sort of managing the messaging a little bit mm-hmm. and um 
you know, I think there is nothing to say that as they reveal more details around exactly what is going to be in that range, um, you know, it's clearly not just going to be a plant-based burger, but they've also talked about potentially alternatives to chicken. And I wonder whether when we're actually going to see the final product lineup and the menu items, whether some of that more foodie language, you know, that that perhaps something that's perhaps a little less sterile than McPlant is going to it's going to appear there. But, you know, I, I think there's still this is such an early stage in, in this announcement that um, I would expect them to, to talk a little bit in more detail about what's happening on the supplier side in due course. But, yeah, Laura, I agree. If you um champion supply chain transparency and you you want to put up your your farmers and talk about who supplies your beef you should show the same level of enthusiasm across your range and of course if you have a plant-based range that you're really proud of you should be championing and shouting about your plant-based suppliers because you should be equally proud of them as well I agree. I think it'll also be interesting to understand how they actually work out the different products in the range, because they've always had such a simple range of products that actually, if you if you actually start to introduce quite a few plant based products, do you actually lose some meat products? How do you actually ensure that you don't end up with a wider, wider selection of product choice and actually possibly confusing consumers? How do you actually introduce more plant-based and reduce the meat-based products? Should it not be a combination of both rather than just adding to the range? Should they not be perhaps seeing what meat products potentially could be dropped uh, in replacement with plant-based products? Laura, what's your first article for us? Uh, My first article this week's from The Guardian and it's independent shops hit out at high street chains trading under lockdown. Um, And as we know, in England, we're uh, in the middle of uh, our lockdown too. Um, And this is a a challenge by some of the independent retailers. It's a bit of a myriad in terms of what's remained open and what's not. And something that I've I've picked this article, something I've experienced myself having a walk through town and thinking, oh, I'm surprised that retailer's open and that retailer's not and, and, and vice versa. So the Guardian article talks about thousands of independent retailers have urged the government to crack down on major chains. And the the, uh, chains it it name checks in the article are the range, carpet right and Ryman's for continuing to trade under lockdown despite largely selling non-essential goods. Um, it doesn't reference it in the article, but something that sprung to mind and something we've chatted about on the show was Wales and how the fact they try to to stop uh, the sale of non-essential goods in um, in other retailers. And that's something that, that, that we haven't seen in England. But what that's created is independent retailers feeling really frustrated that they've got big competitors selling products that they normally sell, but they've had to close their doors. So there's a nice soundbite in here from um, Andrew Goodacre, the chief exec of Byra, the uh, trade association representing 3,000 independents and he says his members are furious that large homewares and non-food businesses were continuing to trade while small businesses were sticking to the rules and they're using words like injustice, unfair and unlevel playing field. Um, it talks about supermarkets, garden centres, bike shops and news agents and those selling food, pet supplies and hardware including DIY shops are all classified as essential and allowed to continue to trade and as I say it's this what's essential and what, what isn't piece and there's a nice little soundbite about um, Mike Ashley in here of a Fraser's group 
Um, and he said the government's handling of the coronavirus was causing devastation to the retail sector. And it's interesting that the Fraser's group uh, have decided not to open any of their chains or to try and get any of their chains to open during the lockdown, um, which they did try with Sports Direct during the first uh, lockdown. Uh, in their portfolio includes Evans, the um, cycle shop, and even though that they probably would be allowed to open, uh, they've decided not to. And it says um, a source from one major retailer that competes with the range that it's like the wild west out there the legislation was rushed and now the government has lost control and some of the big retailers are taking liberties with a very unfair playing field so it's just really interests me as I say from a personal point of view being surprised about what retailers are open and, and, and what aren't even going into shops pre-lockdown probably like a, a lot of other folks rushing around and thinking right I need to get this before you your shops close for the next month and them saying oh well actually we're going to be open next week and being quite surprised at that um and actually is that fair or not and should retailers be taking more of a moral standpoint um m&s are name checked in the article saying that they are only going to open clothing areas that are adjacent to their food halls uh, and not open uh, wider sections of their stores and close off other sections of their stores bruce what's your experience and what are your thoughts of this when you're looking around retail at the moment and seeing some of these small retailers that, that are really struggling and the, the bigger boys are, are naturally wanting to keep trading. Yeah, no, I, I think it's incredibly unfair and very confusing. I, I, I'm, I'm totally confused which stores are classed as essential and which ones are not. And I think that's part of the reason it's driven online sales because people just, they don't want to end up taking, going out and realising that the shop they wanted is shut. So they end up going online. And I just think the smaller retailers, I mean, the vast majority of, of businesses in the UK are small independents and they really are struggling because they physically, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier of a lady that was in tears in a local shop to ourselves because she knew that lockdown was coming and she thought she wouldn't survive. So it's, it's really difficult, but I just think the government handled it really poorly in terms of how it's been communicating and some of the bigger retailers have exploit loopholes to stay open while the 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 general uh, smaller retailers have just followed the guidelines to the letter Uh, and unfortunately that's been their downfall in a way i just think the government could have handled it an awful lot better now Bruce, what's your second article for us? Um, my second article is from the grocer uh, it's, and it's about Nestle buys mindful chef to increase its direct-to-consumer profile, which I which I thought was was fascinating. I mean, basically, Mindful Chef are a bit like a recipe box, like a HelloFresh, so they're very positioned around health and freshness, and that comes through in the recipes, so they're very much at the premium end. Uh, and the interesting thing is the founders, uh, Giles Miles and, and, and Robert, are actually remaining in the business, and it's actually the private equity company, Piper, that are no longer going to be involved. Uh, and Mindful Chefs are a really interesting company. They've actually grown massively over the last five years as we've all started to think about trying to uh, uh, use a sort of recipe box solution to our sort of diets. I think no food waste and it, everything's used and it's a really clever. They've grown to now predicted to be 50 million. Uh, and interestingly, they did a lot of their seed funding and grew through, um, they're actually uh, people like, Andy Murray and Victoria Pendleton and Will Green were investors. So I think they're a very, very cool company. But I think the most interesting thing 
which 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 caught my eye was actually one of the bidders who was unsuccessful was Waitrose. And I do think uh, I am surprised that the retailers haven't already got a recipe box solution because uh, I do think that's a, a massive uh, miss. Uh, and it's interesting to see that Waitrose obviously are now looking at it seriously because I do think there's a huge opportunity to actually using freshness ingredients, encouraging us to actually get back in the kitchen and cook. Uh, I do think the, the, the retailer that jumped on this bandwagon first because they've got massive buying power uh, and a massive opportunity to cross sell in the store. So actually not only sell the recipe boxes, but give the consumer the opportunity to actually come and select uh, uh, items for a recipe box. Uh, I think it's another huge opportunity. And again, importantly, I think another differentiator they could create um, to uh, our friends at Discounter. Uh, so I do think they really need to jump on that quickly. And it would be interesting to see who's first, um, first off the mark. It's a great article, Bruce. And um, the, the cross-selling point that you make there is really interesting. Nestle's ownership of Nespresso and other brands, you think, how easy is that going to be for them to, to, to cross-sell into their wider portfolio? And it's something, as you say, that's always... Um, uh, troubled me why uh, retailers haven't jumped on this quicker and do you think it's bit because of the traditional setup of a retailer is in category teams and it's about making a margin for that team and that area rather than do you know what we could work with other areas of our uh, our colleagues and teams to put a product together and it's always been uh, I guess looking at the protein category it's always been why aren't you doing a gondola end with all the different ingredients and some wine and it's always felt quite challenging for for retailers to do that and we've seen the likes of Morrison's I guess being uh, quite leaders in terms of some of the boxes that have run over the pandemic um, and how they've uh, sort of changed the the, the, the the game in terms of that and you're right with Waitrose being name checked I think others will be looking at this and thinking how do we jump on the fact that consumers just want that ease and that convenience to be able to feel like the cooking when actually they're probably just putting a few things in a pan and warming up, my ideal type of cooking, by the way, uh, rather than actually cooking from scratch. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think the challenge is, from a planet point of view, and I think the younger uh, I've got, we're quite grown-up children now, but, but in reality, I think they see the advantage of actually the recipe box where they can actually cook from scratch. There's no food waste. They're actually creating a recipe. I'm guilty of going into a retailer, buying lots of products I don't actually need, and then actually thinking when I've got them home, what am I actually going to do with that? Have I actually got a, a, an actual recipe? Often you end up, you know, we walk on the shop where you actually come back and go, I'm, I'm not actually got a proper meal here. I've just got lots of yeah. bits. So I think the opportunity as we all become lazier, but, but also understand that we need to be easier, healthier, I think is a good opportunity to see if you can create something to help people make their life easy for them, enable them to use fresh ingredients and not waste food. I think that's a huge, huge bonus. You're totally right. And I think we talk a lot on, on the police and we even touched on it last week about people wanting meal inspiration, but running off a repertoire mm. of four or five meals. This gives you an easy solution to, yeah. to have 10 um, meals or even more in your repertoire without feeling you having to run the gauntlet at retail, as you say, thinking, or oh, I forgot my root ginger or <laughs> whatever it might be for that specialist recipe. Mm. 
I think there are definitely quite a lot of arguments in, in favour of these boxes. And as you say, you know, Waitrose being um, referred to in this context, I, I don't think they have um, ever officially confirmed their interest, but it's sort of been widely, report, widely reported that they uh, they were thought to be sniffing around this um, alongside um, Nestle. So it'll be interesting to see whether we are going to see um, more interest. I think there have been some experiments in that area already from retailers. I think they are, lots of these retailers are very much alive to that opportunity. There are, of course, challenges, and, and one of them is around the sort of viability of that business model. Um, I think these box models are maturing and um, it is uh, becoming, I think, easier for them to convince investor that, investors that there is a, a viable business model here. And the fact that this deal has just happened clearly speaks to that. But, you know, as with anything around online grocery delivery, there are some real challenges. Um, you can you can end up with something that is a super service that delivers on health and inspiration and is incredibly convenient and makes you absolutely zero money. So that is something that obviously the the retailers will, will be will be very um, aware of. I also I think Laura, you raise a really good point about the sort of challenges around cross category work. I do also wonder whether there are some challenges around price perception. Because, of course, you'd have to charge a premium for the service and for the fact that you are delivering to consumers, even if they pick it up themselves in store, uh, tailored ingredients in exactly the right quantities. What do you do then around price perception and the fact that, you know, if I give you a tiny little uh, sort of sachet of chives or whatever it might be or a certain spice and you can pick up far larger quantities in the same store for a different at a different price point i can see that that there's maybe a little bit of sensitivity there of what that does to how consumers perceive your price competitiveness um but yeah i would certainly expect um us to see more activities in 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 this area it'll be fascinating to see what nestle does with it um as well they've got so much experience in direct to consumers so i think having them um be part of a a, a box operator like this, I think, opens up lots of um, interesting opportunities for them as well. What's your second article this week? So my second pick this week is from Fast Company, and it's an article titled, This Vertical Farm is Growing Food, But It's for Cows. Vertical farming is a huge topic in feed and agriculture, of course, there's lots of buzz around it. We've talked about it on the podcast on several occasions as well. This is a really interesting twist on the subject because it's about using vertical farming technology to grow animal feed. Um, and the company that's being profiled in this article is a US startup called Grove Technologies. And their vision is for farmers to grow um, a certain proportion of the feed they need themselves on their own farms using a vertical farming system. So there's less need to import or transport feed. And of course, by farming vertically, you're using less land as well. Um, and there's some interesting uh, sort of figures in, in this um, article. So Grove, say a single tower of their growing system takes 850 square feet on the ground, but it can grow as much wheat or barley grass as 35 to 50 acres of farmland. Now, to be clear, the company isn't suggesting that feed grown in these vertical farming systems will replace all feed. And their vision is for it to replace a significant proportion. And in the trials they have done so far with a dairy farm in Utah, 
the feed from the vertical farms accounted for roughly 15% of a cow's diet. The farms themselves are quite interesting as well. They're robot operated. Everything is automated. And again, the idea here is that you're making it as easy as possible for the farmer. So if you're a farmer like this dairy farmer in Utah and you buy one of these uh, vertical farming systems, it basically runs itself. You don't need to become an expert in vertical farming to use it. You don't need to spend lots of time or, or hire people to look after that um, system. It sort of does it all itself. Still, of course, return on investment on these kinds of systems is always a big question. Um, operating costs can be quite high as well. And the article doesn't really go into any kind of detail on how the cost of a vertically farmed feed ration compares against a traditional feed ration. Um, it does say that, of course, the company is mindful of, of the sort of cost challenges and it has designed the system to minimise cost. They have special lights, for example, that don't put out heat, so you don't need heavy-duty air conditioning to manage temperature, for example. Um, as I said, they're currently testing this with a dairy farm in Utah. They're ultimately looking at markets like China as uh, sort of big potential markets for this kind of system. And interestingly, they see this as a way potentially for dairy and beef farmers to boost the sustainability credentials of their products, particularly at a time when plant-based is growing. We talked about McPlant a little earlier. Consumers are becoming more interested in the environmental impact of the products they're buying, particularly meat and dairy products. So being able to point to a system like this, making that part of your production story, um, you know, making it part of the story that you tell consumers, um, I think could potentially be an interesting avenue for farmers to explore, especially uh, if it ends up being reasonably cost competitive as well, because that's obviously going to be uh, the key factor here. Bruce, what did you make of it? Could you see something like this take off? Absolutely, I can. And actually, I think the UK is a perfect market for it because obviously it just doesn't have the landmass. I can see it being a really strong. I mean, I think if article, they were predicting a free year payback whether that how factual that's going to be but, but I can see you know all the unpredictability that you get with growing uh, products in, in the normal environment you know it's you know if you suddenly get we got um, a hot spell in the UK and all of a sudden the, the hay production in that couple of weeks was massive increase in the production so you take all that uh, away all of a sudden you you know what you're going to be able to um, how much you're going to be able to grow. It all becomes much more scientific and predictable, which I would imagine from an investment point of view, takes these sorts of unknowns away. That's got to be a good thing for British farmers. So I, I do hope it does go, because at the end of the day, whilst I think we will eat less meat, we still are always going to be big meat eaters in the UK. And if we can actually reduce the land mass uh, and actually plant more plant-based products, I think that's going to be a, a great thing, especially now as we start move to being out of 
the UC as well. I was super, unsurprisingly, super interested by the article as well. And it reminded me, the picture in the article, it's worth taking a look at it, was like an indoor tennis court. You know, like one of these temporary indoor tennis courts it reminded me of from the uh, 1990s. Uh, I can see it very much supporting um, existing production systems. Uh, and, and, but I'm not sure about replacing. And, and I guess at this stage it is talking about supporting. And, and I guess it's um, marrying up that stocking density question as well about you know if you want to reduce space for grazing uh, and you're not going to need it to 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 grow grass necessarily uh, but uh, what's the welfare challenge around that and what's important to consumers off off the back of that and it's back to that traceability um, and transparency point about consumers wanting to know yeah the the carbon footprint of, of, of a lot of food that they're eating so very interesting and interestingly as well it's doing well in dairy at the moment more so maybe than beef production and, uh, and the China push. So definitely want to watch indoor tennis courts with grass in popping up everywhere. <laughs> well, what's your second article? My second article this week is from The Grocer and it's Sainsbury's to permanently close in-store counters and 420 Argos stores. Um, this is off the back of the news that uh, Sainsbury's have had their in-store uh, counters closed since uh, the corona uh, virus starting in March. Uh, but they've confirmed this week that they're not going to reopen those. And their counters for um, meat, fish uh, and some of the cheese counters as well. Um, at the end of last year, we saw Tesco decide to close some of their counters in their bigger stores. And Asda have also uh, followed suit. Um, and it's interesting, uh, the, the Argos News too, over the next three years, as it continues to integrate with the retailer into its supermarkets, uh, some of those stores will close and overall it could be three and a half thousand rolls could be affected with the proposed restructuring. And I guess... Um, there's been a lot of press over this over the last couple of days which is super interesting and I'm keen to chat through with you but one of the um, snippets within this article really caught my eye and it's from Simon Roberts the new CEO of Sainsbury's Um, he took the the helm from Mike Coop earlier this year and he's talking about the fact that COVID-19 has accelerated a number of shifts in our industry investments over the recent years in digital and technology have laid the foundations for us to flex and adapt quickly as customers need to shop differently. Around 19% of our sales were digital this time last year and nearly 40% of our sales are now digital. So then that's just a, a, an overwhelming stat that actually we're not going to, to uh, standalone Argos stores as much as we were. We're not going to, to counters as, as much as we were and the way we shop is different and is digital uh, as we're aware. But what's really interested me is these counters uh, have um, not necessarily Sainsbury's supermarkets across the piece taking out Morrison's from the mix for a moment have struggled and have tried to reinvent themselves over and over. And it's interesting, even this week, I see Scott Midder are starting a franchise model with some of their local butchers to try and rejuvenate the whole counters proposition and it's so reliant on the people that have stood behind them the knowledge that they have and competing if we're talking about me with a local butcher for argument's sake julia i know you and hope you don't mind me picking on you you've just done an amazing article in the telegraph this week about all of this what's your thoughts looking from the sort of outside in inside in Yeah, it's it's a it's a really challenging time for counters, and I think the point that you made, you know, not just about counters, but I think about all sorts of um, shopping trends in general. The, the 
as uh, as Simon Roberts says in in that quote, I think we've just seen such an acceleration of certain trends, um, and I think it's forcing decisions um, about um, uh, you know counters, but also other initiatives um, at, at various retailers. I think the point about counters is quite interesting that you've got sort of long term trends that you know happened uh, long before COVID, then suddenly being accelerated by COVID. Um, and I think with counters in particular, you know, they can be expensive to run. You know, as you said, you need to have that investment in 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 staff, um, not just great quality staff, but you also just actually need to keep them manned so that you know if people do uh, want to use counter services. There is someone there to actually serve them. Um, we've got less footfall in, in stores at the moment. People want a, a quick and easy in and out shop. They're not necessarily in the mood for browsing. And so if you have that kind of a shopping environment and you keep those counters open, that can be quite challenging. You get a lot of waste potentially. You know, Waste has, has always been a, a challenge for counters, but it's a particularly big challenge in, in the current climate. So, um, yeah, I think it's just accelerated some of these longer term trends. Um, as you say, I think we, we talk about the demise of the counter. We're very much talking about that traditional counter because I think there are some interesting efforts underway in various retailers to reinvent the counter because that sort of sense of theatre and having someone serve you and provide a little bit of something different to what you're getting elsewhere in the supermarket I think that is still as powerful as ever the question just is does that need to be a, a meat and fish counter right now does it need to be a deli counter or is it something that is a little bit more um, you know food court uh, related Asda is a really interesting example here because they are looking at replacing meat and fish counters with sort of what they call food for now offers. So maybe sushi or hot pizza. So it still gets you something that, that adds some 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 theatre and, and also has that sort of personal interaction potentially, just in a slightly different way that's perhaps a little bit more suited to um, our, more, our desire for, for convenience foods at the moment. But yeah, it's a really fascinating one. Bruce, what is your experience? And are you someone who would have uh, bought I, from supermarket counters or are you a local butcher kind of person? I do love a counter, I have to say. And I do think this is a decision being pushed by COVID and a decision that I think they will regret. And I suspect the Morrisons are absolutely rubbing their hands because they can make their counters a real experience where they help the consumer in their choice of meat and how they prepare it and use it as an opportunity to cross-sell and train people well, I think the counters are superb. Their big problem, I think, is this was another big differentiator they had from the discounters. And I think to lose that, I think they will regret it. And I think Morrison's will be very happy at this announcement and I'm sure they're going to take full advantage of it. Um, so watch this space. Bruce, it's been lovely to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.